it's really hard to be casual or have casual sex in the same way anymore once your body is disabled or alter able in some capacity there's more explaining you have to do your partner can't rely so much on like heteronormative assumptions of what a body is how it works and what pieces it i'm leanne welcome to strippers and sages Today, I'm speaking with Aidan LaRue, an interdisciplinary artist, writer, critic, and educator whose work explores embodiment, eroticism, and illness in order to challenge contemporary narratives about gender, sexuality, and family structures. In addition to her own practice, Aidan is the assistant director of Odyssey Works, an interdisciplinary performance group that designs transformative experiences for audiences of one, so they will spend six months to a year preparing what is essentially a multi-day odyssey for a single person. So in this episode, we speak about the eroticism of sustained attention and the connection between empathy, sex, and intimate experience design. We also discuss the fallibility of the body, which is a topic that Aiden has had to give deep consideration since at age 24, she was told that she needed prophylactic surgery to remove her breasts and ovaries when she tested BRCA1 positive, which means that she has an 87% chance of developing breast cancer and a 50% chance of getting ovarian cancer. We talk about how this diagnosis has influenced Aiden's relationship to her body and her sexuality. We also discuss her recent piece, which was published in Guernica, titled The Art of Stillness, in which she writes beautifully about how posing as a nude model prepared her for the frequent MRIs and screenings that she's had to undergo. Before we get to the episode, I also want to give a quick shout out to our sponsors, Ova Moon. Ova Moon is a menstrual balancing multivitamin that truly does wonders for womb-bodied people who bleed. I am one of them, and I can attest to this. It regulates the cycle, it eliminates PMS, reduces stress, and delivers vital micronutrients to the body. Hi, Aiden. Thank you so much for being here with me today. It's really great to have you. Yeah, it's great to be here. So you are the assistant director of Odyssey Works. Can you start by just introducing Odyssey Works and how you got involved, what your praxis is, give us a sense of what it means to have an Odyssey experience? Yeah. So I'm the assistant director of Odyssey Works. I've been working with them since 2011. So just about nine years now. And Odyssey Works is a an interdisciplinary performance group. So we work with all different kinds of artists and we study the life of one individual in order to make a bespoke transformative experience for that person. So usually we spend about six months researching their life and then deciding, asking ourselves what we wish for them. It's a very intimate process. And we once we ask what we wish for them, we start thinking about what experiences we can create that will help evoke that sort of emotional trajectory, whatever that looks like. Hmm. So you've described it before as, uh, as an exercise in empathy and the magic of paying sustained, intimate attention to another person. And I think there's an inherent eroticism in that kind of intimacy, 
right? In fact, when I took one of your workshops, we spoke about how it becomes almost impossible not to fall a little bit in love with a person once you've come to understand their fears and desires and seen the world through their eyes. So I'd love for you to talk about the role of empathy in Odyssey's work and also about how empathy, how you think about empathy and eroticism and how this idea of sustained attention might be applied to sex and intimacy. Yeah, you know, I think I was drawn to the work initially because it was such an intimate uh, and vulnerable experience for me. I was trained as a visual artist and and also as a writer, and I've always been interested and drawn to work that has that quality of of real vulnerability. And um, in a lot of ways, I think I came to Odyssey Works through this sense of like, what would it be like for any creative work to feel like you're sending a letter to someone? And I've had a long letter writing process or practice um, and always really loved mail. Mm. And something about that, like direct address and speaking to someone intimately, I think creates a very different quality of discourse and conversation. And so for me, our work, starting with empathy, I think is so profound because it allows us to connect with a complete stranger in a way that we never would. So the people who apply to receive Odysseys, we do about one a year, sometimes two, but very rarely. And the people who apply are are so different and they come from like, it's such a cheesy phrase, but all walks of life. And it's a moment for us as a team of artists to really empathetically understand experiences that are different from ours and offer care. Like to me also the act of empathizing isn't enough if it doesn't then extend into this mode of care or generosity. And all of our performances are given as gifts. So they're free and we find other means of funding, whether it's um, through commissions or through now we offer classes that um, we're teaching about our practice in order to help fund an odyssey that then is given as a gift. And sometimes we're funded by festivals or we fundraise. So, but no matter the case, it's always um, given as a gift. And I think inherently, uh, you know, we're really good at giving gifts to our romantic partners. And that's because we're so intimate and close to them. And so I think I'm diverging a little bit from your question, but uh, I think inherently empathy and care and intimacy and vulnerability are all part of this like quadrilateral mm-hmm. thing where they're related and they're in conversation with each other. Um, and I think maybe that what's unusual about our work is that these people are strangers. And so we're used to care and empathy and intimacy and vulnerability all being in conversation with the people that we're most intimate with, whether it's family or friends or romantic partners, sexual partners. Um, But this is with a complete stranger. Mm -hmm. I was thinking that there's an idea of real vulnerability on the part of someone who receives that experience. They're really handing themselves over to to you, to Odyssey Works, to the people who are creating this. There's a complete surrender, mm-hmm. right? Someone who signs up has no idea what they're in for. Um, and so I think there's that submissiveness that has has a, a relation to 
Well, it's interesting because I wouldn't necessarily call it submissiveness, but I do think surrender is mm. a great word for it. And and maybe where I would differentiate is that even though they're surrendering a lot of control, they still have agency. And so when they're in these performances, they're fully immersed with their lives and um, often their friends and family play a role. So the material of their day-to-day is still part of it. It's not like a proscenium-style theater where there's a stage and we're performing just for that one person seated in the velvet chairs of a theater, right? Right. It's fully interwoven and immersive in their life. And that's part of the power. And that's why we see such transformation in our participants. And we call them participants because they have that agency where the choices they make have real ramifications in their life. And we can't script their performances. We can have a trajectory and it's almost more like a a map of where things will go, but we can't plan out dialogue because they can say whatever they want. They can go off course. We've had people go off course before. And so there's this like surrender, but it's also surrender and and real receptivity to whatever we're offering. And then I guess receptivity and adaptability on your part when they do go off course. You know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm thinking that this may And they still... do have a safe word though. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so it's funny because then, we, yeah, there are some of these like cues in terms of consent in the work. Um, where every performance before they sign the waiver, we give them a safe word if they ever need to leave some part of it. Um, and we think really carefully before the performance begins about interviewing their friends and family about the sort of like red tape, um, where should we not go just because we have access to all of their life doesn't mean that we're necessarily going to use it or, um, you know, we don't want to exploit it. Well, I'm I'm thinking that maybe this still sounds a little abstract as a concept. So I'm wondering if you could give a, an example or a few small examples of of the type of experience or moments from experiences to help somebody listening who's never heard of your work visualize in some way what we're talking about. I received an odyssey. Yeah. I can tell you a little bit about my odyssey because in some ways that maybe it's clear what the impact is. So I, in November, 2016, um, I was about to, to move to Texas and leave New York. Um, I'd lived in New York for a very long time and I was moving to Texas with my then partner and I have a genetic mutation. I'm BRCA1 positive. So I have a predisposition for breast and ovarian cancer and have been told that I, or doctors recommend prophylactic surgery, um, preventative surgery, mostly like roughly around the age of 35 Um, or sometime there before. My grandmother got sick when she was 34. So even, and they usually say like 10 years before the earliest incidence of cancer. So I'm, I'm risking it. I'm 31 now and um, still just screening, but The odyssey that I received was a lot about making me feel safe and ready to have those surgeries. And um, it began uh, by this artist came and she made a cast of my breasts, like a wax cast. And then... um, And just even 
So, mm-hmm. so even before, like, do you know the day that it's going to happen? Is it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's, but you it's, don't know what's going to happen. We set aside, usually it's like we, a weekend. Okay. So we set aside dates. So I knew this was happening. I knew I had given um, the team, you know, it's funny because I anticipated and knew a lot of what the tips and tricks in our toolbox are, but um, I, I give them or any participant gives a list of the friends and family they want interviewed. Um, dream journal, we keep a dream journal, um, a list of important places, things like that. Um, and so I woke up, I didn't know where, what was going to happen at all, but this woman came and visited. I hadn't had breakfast. I just like was woken up and this woman, this artist came in and she asked if I felt okay taking my shirt off. And I said, sure. And then she made a cast of my breasts and, um, then there, were, there was like a ton that went on in between there, but this is like one through line. Mm-hmm. And I was really interested in art that was a pilgrimage. So I really love land art of the 60s and 70s, which are these big monumental works. Most of the time they're out in the desert. Um, and I've had a number of really transcendent experiences there. Um, and in particular, Nancy Holt, this artist who has a work called Sun Tunnels in Utah, um, had really moved me. I had a completely transcendent experience there with my former partner. And so my whole odyssey ended up being a pilgrimage to another Nancy Holt work that I didn't know about that was in Virginia. And so I was starting in New York and there were all these really beautiful moments in New York city with loved ones, with places that I loved, um, but the whole time what ended up happening was pilgrims usually carry an offering. And so I would ended up carrying this wax mold of my breasts in my backpack the whole day. Um, and then the second day I was just walking from Maryland, from Baltimore into Virginia, where along this path where I ended up at the whole piece. And when I got to this Nancy Holt piece, I offered up. Um, because you usually leave your offering at the site, the end point of your place of pilgrimage. So I had to give up these, this mold. It was really, really hard. It felt like very symbolic that I had this representation of my body, this like direct imprint of my body. And so I ended up, and I had a group of other fellow pilgrims who were with me and we all offered up um, our own tokens. And for me, I left my cast of my breasts there and I'm using cast and mold interchangeably. And I always forget which one's the positive and which one's the negative, but, um, and then a few weeks later, when I moved to Texas, my former partner gave me this candle. Um, and, he and my best friend, Sandra, had made melted down. They, it turned out they hadn't left the offerings there. And so they had melted down the cast of my breasts and made it into this candle, which now sits on my desk. And it feels like a, a safe protection. So that's like, I mean, and again, you're missing so many beautiful moments of course. <laughs> in my odyssey, but that's just like a little 
snippet. No, I think that captures really beautifully. It's that you're the empathy piece of tapping into, like you said, what do we wish for this person? What does this person need for their mm-hmm. own evolution in this life? And mm-hmm. um, so I wonder from your work, what has engaging with that kind of subjectivity taught you about desire? And I know that you mm-hmm. also taught sex ed. And so mm-hmm. I'm curious too how your work with Odyssey and empathy and desire informed your work teaching at Flex Factory, what kind of education you were giving, what you were hoping to impart there. Yeah, you know, it's so interesting. I've always felt like, um, and I don't, <laughs> I don't always say vocalize this because I think sex work is really stigmatized, but I think there is a lot of overlap in the way that Odyssey works attends to and cares for people Mm -hmm. um, and the realm of sex work and the level of care and empathy and attention to detail that goes into crafting an experience for a client. Um, And I have friends who are sex workers and that's partly just from coming out of conversations with them and, and what it's like for them. Um, But I think really for me, teaching sex ed felt very related to my work with Odyssey Works, even though one, I was like on a team of artists and I was teaching sex ed as an individual artist. And I think a lot of it has to do with curiosity. Um, and the, you know, the list of 36 questions to do, to fall in love with anyone, do like ask these questions those have always felt really um, kindred in spirit to the Odyssey Works questionnaire, which is how people apply to receive an Odyssey. They fill out this long questionnaire that asks them questions that are quite similar to that um, study that was done. Um, and I think people just aren't trained to be curious. And so it was really interesting to bring a similar sort of like curiosity and openness and um non-judgmental perspective. And that was really what I was teaching was essentially, how do you communicate your desire? This was also pre me too, but um, I think in a place of, or a time of heightened awareness around sexual assault and uh, sexual violence against women. And so to me, there was this real question around consent. How do you express what you want, but also not feel like you're intruding on someone and how can you really be true to yourself, but also not be scared of your own desires. Because I think to me, that's where a lot of the like gray areas of consent and crossing barriers happens because people don't know how to sort of like appropriately express desire that doesn't feel needful or aggressive. But, um, and so for me, the two, feel very connected in that there's like an inherent eros to giving anyone and anything attention. I think the big difference with Odyssey works, of course, is that there's not reciprocity. And that's something that's always been really interesting in our process for me is that I, as the artist, am not as vulnerable as that person who's our participant. And um, yeah, it's always an interesting thing to navigate. Oftentimes I want to be friends with our participants afterwards. And I kind of, we always sort of leave it up to that person to decide what kind of relationship they want to have with us, how often they want to be in contact. Most of the time it's like once a year, but it is really hard if you've allowed so many people to be in your life, but then you don't know that much about them. Right. So, um, 
yeah, I think that, that there is an inherent eros and attention and, and just care and, and, uh, presence. I think, I mean, all these like sort of cheesy overused words, but they, those words gain more power once they're truly enacted and embodied, I think. And how, how did you approach those themes in your, in your sex ed course that you were teaching? Was it experiential or was it lecture or did you draw on some of the experience design tools? It was a variety. Mm. Um, it was all of the above. So there were optional readings each week. Um, it was a month long class once a week. And I had done some one-off classes as well for other places. And um, each week had a theme. And so we talked about different relationship styles in one week. We also, um, Flux Factory is an amazing artist residency in Queens. And I was particularly interested in, in presenting this in an art space because I think art spaces are really at the forefront of accepting all different styles of thought. And there are places where the most radical ideas get expressed the, the earliest in art spaces, I think. Um, and art is a place of protest um, and where we, it's a place where we are allowed to have those conversations out in the open sometimes for the first time. So we talked about the relationship of art and, and eros and sort of what the task of representing sexuality is in art. And then another week was about art and community or sex and community. So because I was in a, um, an artist residency, I was interested in talking about like uh, dynamics of and boundaries that particularly exist within communities and how you navigate them. Because uh, I think oftentimes when I've been in, in spaces of community, there's like an unspoken rule about like don't date people within the community. Um, but inevitably you become closest to those people. So how do you navigate it um, if you are within that community and, and decide to have a relationship? And then one was the first week was about communicating desire. And so we had um, one of the activities that I did aside from readings was um, I gave people practice uh, scripting, expressing something that made them uncomfortable. This is something I had learned in college in a, a class called um, the psycho, was it psychosexuality, I think was what it was called. And um, our professor basically had scripted, like, how can you tell someone that you're interested in scat play? Um, and so essentially it was like, you're given this dialogue and you have to practice just listening and accepting something that maybe feels quite edgy to you. Um, but how do you practice getting curious? And so by having this sort of like role play that wasn't about a particular desire you necessarily have, you can get start getting comfortable with what does it mean to listen to someone else's desire and, and get curious and maybe still say, no, I'm not interested in, in you pooping on me. Um, but like, tell me what turns you on about that. Or are there other things that we could do that might be related to that, but like, aren't the same, you know? So it was really just about how do you get comfortable accepting something rather than like being taken off guard. Mm -hmm. I love, I love what you're saying about having those conversations in an art space. And mm -hmm. I share your interest and passion um, in recognizing that art really has such a role to play in evolving the conversation around sexuality. So I'm curious, we had spoken or we had emailed about 
a syllabus, a mock syllabus you were creating yeah. around the idea of how do you represent sex in writing? And so mm-hmm. I'm curious both just um, what ideas you have as a creator and as a storyteller mm-hmm. in terms of how to capture sex and eroticism through story, through image, through whatever medium, and also what artist or art has moved you uh, in this realm? Great question. Uh, there, I mean, as you saw from the list, there are far too many to, to get to because sex is everywhere in literature and in art. Um, but I think for me, some of the people that I've been reading lately that I'm particularly excited by, I'm just looking over at my bookshelf. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't even, I mean, I'd love some names and then even perhaps what is the, what are the themes through that? Or what are, what have you learned from yeah. those people? And and when you think about how, as a creator, how to approach that theme? Well, I think to me, there's a difference between represent, representing sex and having sex. <laughs> and so I think also like clearly fantasy plays into this, right? So we can fantasize things that we never want to in an act right mm-hmm. so um to me good sex writing maybe has nothing to do with my particular taste or what i like right or what anyone likes or thinks is good i don't i kind of don't believe in good or bad sex i just believe in like people communicating it what they want well mm-hmm. um and <laughs> asking for what they want well um but i think like classically good good writing of any kind, but particularly about sex is like the strangest specific, I think. And so that's something that Elizabeth McCracken said. She's a writer. Um, and I think about that all the time that like, we don't need another thing that's like about a throbbing member or whatever. <laughs> like we've heard that before. Um, so what's the like specific but weird thing that maybe your imagination wouldn't even come up with. I'm thinking about two scenes in film in particular that has stayed with me that I was actually writing an essay about one is in uh, disobedience. Um, and in that uh, Rachel Weiss and Rachel Adams are being intimate. And like one of them, I think dribbles spit into the other person's mouth. And I think like spit is part of kissing and, and all kinds of intimacy, but there's like something so visceral about that, like watching this spit come out of her mouth into another woman's mouth. Mm-hmm. And then I think about um, the scene in Call Me By Your Name, which like everyone got really worked up about when Timothy Chalamet's character masturbates into a peach. He like pits it and um, comes inside of it. Um, and I think those are like really bizarre and compelling because they're so strange and they're so specific that um you wouldn't think about them and to me that's like what's exciting and interesting um I also think a lot about uh I just read Humiliation by Wayne Kostenbaum who's an amazing art critic and it's a whole book just about um humiliation and as a gay man he talks a lot about humiliation of his body of desiring men of a certain kind of sex that's like stereotypical of gay men um, and cruising and bathrooms. Um, I also think about like Ocean Wong's descriptions 
um, and on Earth were briefly gorgeous of the character's first time having anal sex. Um, the character has already had other kinds of sex with um, this man that he's seeing, but the tenderness of he like doesn't know how or he hasn't learned how to sort of like evacuate himself. <laughs> Um, and so there's like this tenderness of being cleaned in a river. And, um, I think, yeah, places where there's like unexpected moments and collisions are really interesting to me. Totally. Yeah. I think you're thinking about strangeness feels so appropriate because of how, idiosyncratic and particular our eroticism is, right? Like the mm -hmm. whole concept of queerness is acknowledging both that we are not static and that we are, um, that there's an indeterminacy and, uh, and a particularity to our desire. And so mm -hmm. I think you're right that art can really be a healing and inspiring bomb in the realm of sex because it can illustrate just the range as, as it is in all of the other realms of human activity and emotion for us. And so I think that's really spot on and beautiful concept. And I've just been thinking about, well, what is it in art, right? Capital A art that you're describing <laughs> that does that, that for me, pornography doesn't often. And, <laughs> you know, I think maybe there's a delicacy of the treatment or even even the artifice is the gateway perhaps right where pornography is both performative yet meant to be actual and real people and so you and know. pornography has the like explicit aim of like you watch this to get off and right. visual art I think is not that and so if you find it arousing, it's not because you were like, I'm seeking this out. And maybe again, that ties back to the like unexpected or particular where you just get to notice your own responsiveness to something. Right. Right. Totally. Um, you wrote your thesis about the ways that our bodies and our minds are permeable to places, environments, people, and art. And that's sort of what we're talking about here. And I've been thinking also, especially in quarantine, where I feel like my my lens and engagement with the world is so much right now through books and films and podcasts, right? Mm -hmm. There's much less direct experience than prior to this pandemic. So mm -hmm. also, if you think about the erotic or eros as this interplay or interpenetration of life forces, um, it's a similar idea, this exchange. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to just hear what, what ideas you were exploring in that thesis and what led you to be particularly interested in that idea of permeability yeah so it's a the book is called notes on breathlessness and it's a a book like essay a piece of nonfiction um that's based in my own experience of open relationships and non-monogamy so part of that permeability is just about that um <laughs> and then there's another component i i often in my prose and juxtaposing many different threads. So there's a thread that's about personal experience with non-monogamy. There's a thread that's about being asthmatic and it's just sort of a, a weird bit of timeliness that I was thinking a lot about breathing um, for the year coming up to COVID. And then it's funny because then I was finishing that. I had finished that book and was submitting it 
right in the middle of the pandemic hitting and sending it out to agents. And then the third through line is works of art that are about breath or, um, and really I came at it like the project started because I was interested in breathlessness being the like highest praise. I think that one could receive about any work of art or writing like that left me breathless. And part of the power of that praise is that it's like hearing what a, an audience or readers physical embodied reaction was. Um, and you can have all the sort of like adjectives in the world that are just like, it's incendiary, it's magnificent. But I was like, what does that mean? And part of what was interesting to me about the concept of breathlessness was that it was like, it's very, physical and you know what that is and looks like in the body of the person reacting. Um, so I'm juxtaposing and weaving all these things, thinking about art, thinking about, um, disability. I don't have severe asthma, so I don't really conceptualize it as a disability, but um, certainly some people have that. So I was thinking about illness and sickness and weakness in, and then also the ways that our lungs are permeable. So to me, one of the things that's been really apparent to me about asthma is every place I live, my breathing is different. And so I was thinking about the ways that our bodies are permeable in this very literal way to the environment and the atmosphere around us and the pollen and the levels of dust. And in California, smoke from wildfires, the book starts in the middle of wildfire season. And then I'm also thinking about just like the way that as an artist and anyone who's creative and in dialogue um, with other creatives that your ideas are influenced and shaped by the art that you see and by the people that you talk with. And so I was thinking about that too, in terms of dating multiple people, you're having multiple conversations with them and how do those ideas then sort of like weave their way through your body. It's the eroticism of art as well, right? That we can mm -hmm. think of other artists and the art that we engage with as I feel that I have a very intimate relationship with those people and and creations, even if I've never personally met those people. Sometimes you can develop this mm -hmm. intimacy that's even far greater than with the people around you. Yeah, or even like I think about like former lovers or people I've dated and the things that they shared with me like many, many years ago, decades ago that now I like still revisit and how then those works of art have shaped me and been, I've shared them with other partners that I've had. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I like to think about that lineage or that permeability also sort of like transcending time. And a lot of the book also talks about like astrophysics and mm -hmm. um, just like, thinks about how time is nonlinear. And I think some of that like permeability that we're talking about is about letting the order of things dissolve and like consecutive time not being that interesting. <laughs> um, so um thinking, yeah, just thinking about the ways that like in some ways, someone that I dated 10 years ago is now like influencing who I'm with today because of me. Who you're with, yeah. who you are, who, what you're making. In your review of Cyrus Grace Dunham's memoir on queerness, desire, and gender, you wrote, everyone inevitably confronts the fallibilities and betrayals of their own body and the bodies of others, which I think is such an amazing sentiment that you capture. And 
I have also been thinking right now in this pandemic of how how we trust our body, right? Our bodies that can both be sources of absolute pleasure and vitality, and then also the site of agonizing pain and deterioration. And so mm. I'm curious, particularly with your history of breast cancer and your family, you wrote also about how it made you start searching for tumors in your budding breast very early on. And how how has this knowledge of your genetic predisposition um, and even now just being part of what it is to be human right now, navigating a pandemic where there's this invisible virus that may or may not kill you. How do you cultivate a trust in the body, the kind of faith that's necessary, I think, for pleasure and sexual engagement? Mm. Oh, that's a hard question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, it's interesting because I... So in thinking about both my relationship to asthma and my genetic mutation, I've become very aware of the weakness of my body. And and I teach disability and popular culture at UCSD right now. And it's been kind of a funny, I like found my way into this. It wasn't necessarily something that I was seeking out originally, but ultimately I realized that all of my work comes back to, to disability. And I think a lot about the ways that, um, sickness, illness, like I'm not sick and I'm really, really fortunate for that, but becoming acquainted with the ways that your body is vulnerable and will fail is something that everyone will encounter in their lifetime. Like when I teach disability and popular culture, one of the first things I say to my students is, first of all, this is the largest minority group, minority quote unquote group in the United States. Um, it's the largest percentage of the population in terms of a minority group. And also everyone's body is doomed to fail. Even if you're 70 and you, you know, or 75 and you get dementia that is still, that's a disability. We all, unless you're killed instantly in a car crash, you're most likely going to become disabled in some capacity, whether it's permanent or temporary in your whole life. And so I think becoming aware of that is really powerful. And then I think, at least in my mind, that translates or to me, like the relationship of writing about eroticism and illness side by side is about, um, First of all, like being held becomes a lot more powerful. I think when you realize that you could go to pieces in any moment. Um, And I think like your vulnerability comes to the surface more like uh, to me, sex and intimacy changed a lot after I had that blood test that told me about my genetic mutation, the level of trust. Like I felt like I couldn't really show up in my body. And I think it'll change even more once I have surgery. It's really hard to be casual or like have casual sex in the same way anymore. Once your body is disabled or alter abled in some capacity, there's like more explaining you have to do. There's less your partner can't rely so much on like heteronormative assumptions of what a body is, how it works and what pleases it. So to me, part of like, that's the interconnection between the two. And so then the like, uh, 
like the contract of care between two people, no matter how casual or serious your intimacy is, becomes a little bit more tight if you have to have a conversation that's about something, anything, any pain, any body weakness or fallibility or... um, It's really all of us do, right? Even if it's not that we're navigating, if we're differently abled in some way, it's again, it's just, here's here's the idiosyncrasies of my body and here's the pain that I will feel if this happens and the joy that I will feel if this happens. And in some way, sort of you're having the depth of thought and this additional reason to have to communicate and deepen the contract of care. I can see how that would directly relate also to you being a sex educator and to thinking about Yeah. And I think also like the huge thing that happens in sex with people who are differently abled or um, queer sex is that like going back to like my nonlinear astrophysics ramblings about my book is like nonlinear time, nonlinear expectations of the body are sort of already centralized in queer relationships. And um, they're already centralized in relationships between people with different levels and abilities. And so um that the ability to have that conversation doesn't feel quite so radical if you're within a system where that's normalized or a feedback loop where that's in a community that's normalizing that. Um, and that's really like so radically beautiful to me mm. um, that there's more upfront, transparent care and um, vulnerability. Totally. How old were you when you took that blood test? I was 24. Okay. Um, yeah. But you were aware of the risk from a much younger age. I didn't necessarily. It was more like a hunch. My my father's mother died when she was 44. She got sick when she was 34 with breast cancer, and she died of ovarian cancer 10 years later. So, And my, my dad's an only child, and so there's really – and I'm an only child, so there's no other women in the family that I could really trace a history of that through. But I think just as a kid, I could see so deeply how that had shaped my father because his, his mom was – or he was uh, 12 or 13, I think, 14. He was, he was right around the cusp of middle and high school. I think he was in high school when she died, and um, that leaves an impact on anyone, right, to lose a parent. And and so I was just very aware of that. And and other people in my father's side of the family have cancer as well. And so I think it was more just like an intuitive sense. Um, yeah. But I, I wasn't counseled properly, I will say, when I got that blood test. Um, the doctor who gave it to me definitely did not, was not explaining the ramifications. I didn't fully understand what it meant or what the potential was and what it would mean if it came back positive. Um, Mm. So you wrote in your recent essay in Guernica, you described going to this conference on hereditary cancer and that you were looking for other women to fall apart with, but the beige ballrooms deflated (laughs) you. (laughs) 
which is yeah. just an exquisite detail. I, I got everything I needed to know about everyone at that conference from that. <laughs> and this event just ends up being this big sales pitch by plastic surgeons who are kind of preying on women's pain, which I think is this disheartening example of our culture's relentless commodification of the female body and exploitation of these hegemonic beauty standards. So you mentioned how none of your doctors, like you were saying, uh, spoke about the sexual implications of the surgeries as well, that there might be this loss of libido or sensitivity. And so I'm just mm-hmm. curious, like what parallels or connections you see in the medical industry's discourse around breast cancer or ovarian cancer, your experience with these at this conference with the plastic surgeons and our dominant culture's discourse around sex um, and how since you did not find what you were looking for there, (laughs) you know, how, what has your sort of process been around navigating some of these themes? Yeah. Well, I will say also that I think, um, I'm a weirdo. (laughs) And so I'm sure there are women that went to that conference and, and did find community. I did meet one woman who was, I think some of it too, is just that, um, it's very rare for women my age to get tested or for women under 30 to be tested. And so I think some of my struggles, I also had gone to support groups and, and really not enjoyed those. And so some of it had to do with the fact that I just wasn't finding other people like me who were like, especially when I was 24 and single and found out I was like, what does it mean to hook up with someone or go on a first date? Like I really couldn't conceive of what it meant to, to have, to be robbed of like that you're still young and exploring and dating and in this like much more casual way in your twenties, which isn't to say that like in your forties or fifties or sixties, you can't do that either. But, um, I felt sort of robbed in a a unique way. Um, and, and so like, I'm sure there are women who have found great community through that conference and through the support groups, just to me, it felt uncomfortable. And the other thing is I'm an artist. And so some of my discomfort was like, I'm never going to have a nine to five job. I don't think. Um, and so I'm like my support system from a professional side of having health insurance and paid time off is a lot different than some of these other women. So some of what I was feeling was just like not at all related to what they were addressing. Yeah. Like we had this one thing in common, but I was like, it's actually quite superficial. Like I want to find the other young artists who are not taking a stereotypical path in their life and experiencing this. Um, So back to your question though, I think like the, for me, what is so telling about the way doctors have talked to me is the assumption that women are assumed that it's assumed that you want to be a mother and that part of your path as a body is to reproduce. And I've known very clearly, like, this is where I can get really pissed after doctor's appointments. I've known since I was very young that I didn't want to be a mother. And, um, I think part of the reason that sexuality is not talked about in those rooms is because your primary, like what you're viewed, your body's importance is viewed primarily through its ability to reproduce. And then that's attached to like being a wife. And um, 
So for me, I think that conversation would change a lot. If, if doctors always, it actually listened to me when I said I didn't want kids, they never do. They're like, you're young, you'll change your mind. <laughs> um, which is also infuriating and fucking condescending. Um, and I've only had one woman who truly listened to me in that realm. And was like, if that's the case, like you should have a surgery as soon as possible. But I don't know. I think it's also just like menopause is a mystery. So removing your ovaries, some people don't realize this will send you into, um, menopause immediately. Um, and so, you know, some women make it fine through menopause and scathe. They still have a sex drive. They, it doesn't change their body's ability to lubricate, um, during sex. And for other women, they feel like they are hollow inside that the hormonal shift is really extreme. They become very depressed. They lose their sex drive, which if that's a big part of who you are and how you exist in the world is a loss of identity also. Um, There's this real theme of, of, Eros and Thanatos that you're navigating, I think, right? Because Thanatos Thanatos is the death impulse in Greek mythology. So we have, and so what I'm hearing is, okay, you know, you need to have this surgery. The surgery is going to, has the potential to greatly decrease your sexual libido. And Mm -hmm. you get this news at age 24, (laughs) You know, you don't want to be a mother. And so you could just do it then, right? And instead, you're 31. You still haven't had this surgery, right? And so there's, in some ways, this courting of eros or this making space for it. Like, in the meantime, I want to live my life. I want to have this vitality. I want to be young and sexual and and not risk losing that. And at the same time, in doing that, then there's that risk of that risk that of Thanatos that you're engaging with. And so I think there's this really mm-hmm. interesting tension there. I think for me, the, like I fell in love pretty quickly, like maybe four or five months after I got my test results, I met someone and I was um, with that man for more than five years and we were partners. And I think a large part of me before we had met, like when I first found out, I was sort of like, I'm going to have the surgery this summer. And I was on Obama. I was like coming up against that edge with Obamacare where I was about to lose my health insurance through my parents. And so I was like, I should do this before. And then really it was through falling in love with him that I got to like revel in and, and feel in my body and feel held for the first time in a really profound way. And so I do think that made me feel safer in terms of like waiting and watching. And I think the more I did my research, um, the more I sort of was like, it's more expensive for the healthcare system. If I don't have surgery, actually, it's cheaper if I just have the surgery and then don't have extended care. Um, and like seeing the, the like financial ramifications of that to me and like wondering if that's why doctors push preventative surgery Mm. is really sort of like disturbing. Um, and, and I think, you know, there's also different factors like the screening for breast cancer is much more effective than for ovarian cancer, ovarian cancer, most women, and this is in the Guernica piece, I believe, Mm -hmm. um, ovarian cancer, oftentimes when it's found, like the majority of the cases they're stage four. And so the woman is essentially already dead. Um, 
and or it's terminal and there's nothing that can be done. And that's partly because the symptoms of ovarian cancer are very, very generic. It's like bloating, change of appetite, fluctuation in weight. Um, what else? It's like yeah, it, they're just like very vague symptoms that could be associated with anything. And there's no one thing that's going to raise your flag. Um, but breast cancer screening is very efficient for the most part on the other hand. So, um, to me, it, it like feels I'm far more likely to get breast cancer than I am ovarian cancer, but getting of getting my ovaries removed feels more pressing because it's more of a wild card. Um, and I think the like death, it's interesting that you name the death impulse because I think that urgency or like the urgency amount around my creative work did change a lot. Mm. I found out I was bronchopositive, just felt like there was no time to waste. And like, I could, I felt sort of like at, for most of my life, I would could assume that I was entitled to like 75 or 80 years at least. And then suddenly I was like, no, maybe not. And um, it made me much more like determined and ambitious, which often is something that like makes people uncomfortable, but. Um, makes other people uncomfortable about you? Is that what you mm-hmm. mean? Huh. Yeah. Um, but I think also like meeting women who don't want to have kids and don't really care much about marriage also makes me uncomfortable. Like my doctors are certainly uncomfortable at least. Right. Um, Right. Yeah. How, how did you, because you have experimented and worked in so many mediums, visual art as your training theater and experience design. um, And now you are teaching poetry and writing and have just written this book. How, how have you come to hone in on writing as your, I'm being presumptive, your primary area of focus, at least for the time being? Um, I've always been a writer. I think um, it's just more, to me, it's always a question of like, which, what project needs what medium. Um, and even when I was a kid, I went to like writing summer camps and uh, and I also like took art classes after school. So both have always been really present. And when I went to college, I really was like, which one should I, which major should I have? Same thing. Even when I went to grad school, I was like, should I pursue an MFA in visual art or in creative writing? And I ultimately decided I had studied visual art more in undergrad. And so I was like, I'd like to do something different. Um, And to me, also, I will say there is like a sort of, uh, how would I phrase it? Like, I love, what I love about writing is that I can do it anywhere and I can take it anywhere. And there were periods of time, particularly when I was applying more as a visual artist for residencies, um, that I was like, oh, but then I'm going to have to figure out how to transport certain materials or supplies. And that started feeling like a burden. And so I was like drawn to being anything that could like make my practice a little bit more limber. And immediate. Um, Yeah. And I think also, you know, I felt sort of great in the middle of quarantine being like, people still really need words and writing. And this is a form of, I like that I can 
be alone and and produce words still and they still matter and you know I've, I actually was talking with a friend who's a playwright the other day and a couple of friends who are playwrights and it's just like all of theater has halted for and like they're especially these friends of mine who are writing shows for Broadway or off Broadway like they're in a moment where they're like truly like for the next few years, there's nothing. And like the landscape of theater might be changed forever. And there has been, of course, these like beautiful adaptations to have performances be online or readings virtually, but I'm really proud of like the, the literary world and the ways that our work can translate so easily. And I think some of my attraction to, to writing essays right now is about the, like, I can write something and someone can read it and it doesn't have to be synchronous. And it's, I don't know, it just feels like a form that gives me a lot of flexibility. Mm. I'm going to go back to uh, your art modeling and that Mm -hmm. essay that you wrote and just Mm -hmm. wanting to hear, I read, but listeners perhaps haven't read yet, what you you can share about how your experience as an art model both prepared you and then helped you reclaim a sense of um, connection or power within your body around Mm. the time that you got this news so um for the people who haven't read it i wrote this piece uh called the art of stillness on guernica which is an amazing literary magazine on published online and they're really invested in the intersection of art and politics and it's a magazine that i really deeply respect and i think really goes to bat for its writers and has a just like very high level of integrity. I've never had such a good experience working with an editor as I did on this piece. And the piece is really about um, when I was, I think I was 19. um, I was a nude model for a figure drawing for the class for the first time. And I had grown up around a a mother who was very body positive. And um, both my parents were just like pretty, pretty strongly feminist. Um, but my mom in particular was very body positive, sex positive. And so I didn't really like question being naked in front of a room full of strangers. And the essay is really about the ways in which modeling nude prepared me for um, a certain kind of stillness and, and the waiting of um, dealing with my genetic mutation, the stillness of uh, being in an MRI machine, which if you've never had an MRI um, particularly a breast MRI, you're, you're inside of this metal tube with like loud jackhammering noises for 45 minutes and you can't move. Um, and you have an IV and they give me contrast imaging. So like I can basically feel this cold liquid moving throughout my body. Um, and it's really uncomfortable and, and traumatic, like every time I go to get a screening, a fear of getting sick reemerges and it feels very precarious every time I go. Um, and so the essay is really just about the ways that modeling nude in front of people was also like erotically charged, I think, um, particularly the more I did it and, and different spaces have had different experiences, I think, but particularly in my early 20s when I was modeling for like a a drink and draw class it was I think I felt my power and I didn't feel objectified and a huge part of it was this subversion of classically like 
the chauvinist male artist looks at the nude woman and like sees a muse and is turned on by it and he's exploiting her. And to me, modeling felt like this very radical reclaiming of my body and this, this sense of like, I could feel my power over people and I felt autonomous in this way. Whereas like when I'm walking down the street, if someone cat calls me, then I'm objectified. Whereas here I felt like I was seen as an object still, but not objectified, right? Like I was seen as a body in a form to draw, but I was not, people weren't trying to hit on me afterwards or sexualize me outside of my role as a model. And and that was where the power really came. And I think it also made me feel prepared for what it would be to like strip in front of doctors and have random men give Mm -hmm. me breast exams and like, it doesn't, it's, it still doesn't, you know, fully make me comfortable or make it easy necessarily, but it's a, a step, you know. I also art modeled in my twenties. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> and what was, was your experience at all like that? Yeah. I mean, it's funny because you also described one of the classes was a bunch of older women. So I was modeling at some senior mm-hmm. centers and that felt very, yeah. very safe and benign and not particularly erotic. And then yeah. also, you know, a drink and draw in Brooklyn is a different scenario. And I think, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I hadn't, I haven't made this connection for myself, but more recently I've gotten into burlesque. And so I think mm-hmm. there's a similar idea of, um, the agency that you have in your body uh, and the artfulness with which you can present it to others and that that is a source of empowerment and certainly just being naked and uh, having choice about how that nudity, what form that takes. Yeah, to me, it really felt like a craft, I think, particularly because I was also trained as a visual artist. I could understand and I did gymnastics and and danced from a very young age so I felt very in control of my body and my movement and knew how to make it look graceful in a certain way um but also to me there was an element of like I've been on the other side of the drawing pad sketching bodies and I know what lines and angles look interesting and so I wasn't just like oh this is fun let me take my clothes off and stand in front of people it was like I'm thinking very conscientiously about like how and it almost felt collaborative Mm -hmm. at least every time I've done it where I'm like I'm helping you create a certain line or shadow and Mm -hmm. um and how that gave me pleasure how did that Because I'm thinking on the one hand how, and for myself too, how does that influence then my experience of my body with lovers, right? So on the one hand, Mm. on the one hand, it it could create a comfort. On the other hand, there's sort of a different consciousness that one wants to access where I actually don't want to be thinking of of myself from the outside and what compositionally or how my body's being seen in fact that's what I want to overcome because I want to have this really internal um fluid embodied experience so I wonder yeah yeah well Well, I think that comes back to like what you were talking about with um porn versus like erotic art where you know the intentions are very different right um and so 
yeah, what you want from your headspace is is very different. And it's funny too, because I like when I model, I'm very meditative. And so there is, even though I'm conscious of setting up and framing my body in a certain way, um, there's the like hyper presence that is mm-hmm. sort of similar to to sex and intimacy. That's good when you're out of your head um, and like really just in your body. Um, but yeah, similarly, like I don't, I'm not interested in sex where I'm like trying to imitate or perform totally something that then is about like sculpting an experience. I don't know. Um, but I think the, yeah, the intention of the two is very different and that matters and like what people are there for, you know? So thinking about nonlinear time as we've been going Mm -hmm. back and forth, I want to go back to your upbringing. You mentioned Mm -hmm. being raised by your dad and the comfort that both your parents had around, or I'm sure you're were you raised by your dad or both my, your parents? They both were, my okay. parents. They were separated yeah, yeah. or they divorced. You know, I, I think it's because I read, oh, you wrote about your dad being comfortable getting you tampons and how that wasn't a thing. Yeah. And your mom being the one yeah. to say like, here's condoms if you're going to Europe on this yeah. trip. So I want to just hear a little bit more about like how you first learned about sex and how that openness um, influenced you as an adolescence and just a little bit mm-hmm. about your early sexual journey. Um to the extent mm. that you'd like to share about it. I think I was aware from a very young age of, uh, I don't know. I think kids are like very curious about pleasure and um, they're like not, how do I want to say this? Like they aren't, when I took this class on psychosexual behavior, we talked a lot about how adults who like reprimand children for touching themselves or like masturbating are often um, hyper. They're like adding a psychological element to the child's sexuality where they're like, this child is like rubbing on the carpet or something. And that's weird and inappropriate. Um, but like the kid just feels like a nice sensation and doesn't have the like psychological component of sex in their head yet in that moment. They're just like, oh, this feels good. Right. Like in the same way that like it's relaxing when mom like rubs my back and like lightly touches your arm to relax you and get you to fall asleep. And it's not quite as like a sexual development in terms of thinking about another like desire necessarily hasn't entered the realm is Mm -hmm. what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess maybe how young do you want me to talk about is where I'm like, where do I even begin? Yeah. As as young as you, as young as you remember, I guess you could go. I think I was like, honestly didn't have a whole lot of like uh, physical sexual like romantic experiences as a kid I was like kind of your stereotypical like nerdy smart bookish kid who like didn't have sex until I was 19 and you know like was uh I didn't really feel like I belonged in in the place where I grew up I think from a very young age I'm like felt a lot of desire but just didn't feel a lot of like a place to have that land or mm-hmm. I, it felt very frustrated. Like, I think I had a lot of like yearning for a certain kind of like relationship at a young age. And 
I just felt like no one could meet me. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and I think actually like I was reflecting recently that I think there was a lot of like eros in, uh, teachers for me as a young kid, like Mm -hmm. the, there was a certain like power dynamic because I was so in my head and, and really just like reading all the time. And I was like a good student and whatever. <laughs> so I think to me that school like was one of the only places where I felt like teachers felt like they understood me in a way that sometimes I felt like my peers didn't. Um, I didn't have any affairs with teachers or mm-hmm. anything, but um, there was definitely like a particular eroticism around that power dynamic for me, like into my twenties. Um, and I think also I will say I was raised around a lot of lesbians. And so I was like quite comfortable as a young kid being queer and didn't really even feel the need to name it um, or come out. And I've, I think coming out is like a really important rite of passage for a lot of people. And it's a, an important pronouncement of identity that allows a lot of people to explore and experience and, and come into themselves. And to me, I never felt like coming out was important. And I also felt like in some ways, uh, it had this tone of like, you're straight until proven guilt, like innocent until proven guilty, straight until proven otherwise. And I really didn't like that presumption in the same way that I think it's like really a drag that the default norm is the able-bodied or the default norm is a white body. And I wasn't really interested in like, a presumption of a starting place. So to me, yeah, I never, I think a lot of my youth also revolved around like feeling pretty free to desire and like not too judgmental of of certain desires and Mm -hmm. like knowing from a very young age, like I said, I, I knew I didn't want to get married. I knew I wasn't interested in having kids. I knew I was attracted to people regardless of gender even though I was raised in a an environment where sexuality was embraced and like talked about openly I think um there is like I I still didn't it's not like I got around shame about the fact that I masturbated Mm -hmm. or you know, like I still remember in my twenties having a conversation with some friends and they were like, Oh yeah. Like I masturbated this time. And I was like, Oh yeah, me too. And they were like, you lied to us. Like, I guess at one point some friends had asked me if I <laughs> masturbated and I was like, no, of course not. And then like, I guess I made them feel bad. <laughs> so I don't know. I think also there's so much, yeah. Even in a very positive environment, I could like, I wasn't absolved of any embarrassment or shame and um and I think sex is like there's so much about sex like is it the the first kiss you have is it like when you become when you realize that you're attracted to someone or something Mm or um it's a big a big question but yeah I think it's funny too because I've talked with my my dad and his wife now And I was, I just will leave you with the fact that I knew from a very young age, I was interested in human sexuality. And I think that made them uncomfortable. (laughs) Like, even if my dad was like a great feminist and was buying me tampons or whatever, um, I, 
like I remember there was a movie called Kinsey that came out mm-hmm. that had oh who was it? It was a great cast. Um Ralph Fiennes? Is that true? No, I think it's um oh fuck, what's his name? I know. Maybe Liam Ralph, Neeson. Ralph Fiennes. Liam Neeson, yeah. yes. And uh oh what's her name? Laura, Laura Kinney. Kinney. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I remember, I think there was like a family movie night. And for some reason, I chose that film in high school. And I made my whole family like deeply uncomfortable. But I think like <laughs> in a lot of ways, and I uh, I think a lot about like how films dictate what you think is like erotic and sexual totally. and arouses you. Or like I think about the Titanic too. And like that classic scene of Rose modeling and like probably that played into my desire to be a nude model Mm. at some point. Um, And uh, yeah, so anyways, they always make fun of me. And like a couple of times in the past year, they've been like, yeah, like we thought it was really weird that you wanted to watch Kinsey with McKinsey, Mm -hmm. like a movie with all of us as a family (laughs) when you were 15 or whatever. Well, I la- I got landed in child psychology because uh, my parents found drawings I made that had a very pronounced, I was very detail oriented and I drew um, <laughs> like the fly of jeans, you know, like here's the zipper oh, and, yeah. <laughs> or maybe and not them, but a psych- somebody, a therapist saw it or a, a teacher and were like, she's drawing penises at the age of eight on all of her <laughs> figures. There's like a pathology here. And it just opened this whole, yeah, this whole rabbit hole. It's funny too, because like my, I think at one point my mom caught me, like I was a huge reader and I, we went to the library all the time. And I think at some point I like wandered into the romance novel section and I started checking out like pulp romance books in sixth grade and she just didn't realize it because I checked out so many books and then one time I think she and they were totally arousing um and I think one time she found it and she was like yeah talk about throbbing member not appropriate for a sixth grader and she was like you can't be reading these (laughs) yeah there's so much more that I feel I could ask you and get into but uh we'll have to save it for one day when we're allowed to connect over a glass of wine or another conversation here so yeah thank you for all the great questions yeah lovely to chat with you thank you (laughs) if this episode turned you on you can share your appreciation by rating and subscribing to the show this is so important and really helps other people who might be enriched by these conversations find us so if you could participate in whatever mysterious algorithm helps bump podcasts into the public consciousness we here at strippers and sages would be extremely grateful special thank you to ben hufrat for his relentless generosity and virtuosity and for scoring the original music for this show Thank you to Sasha Carney, Casey Odesser, and Isla Khan, my fantastic research and development team. The show would not be what it is without you. And special thank you to Liliana Estes, who mixed and mastered this episode. It's great to have you on our team.